Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Monday, the 7th of March. The war in Ukraine, it continues to rage on. Lots to talk about on that front. Our partner, the Financial Times, uh, is going to kick the program off with uh, its coverage of the uh, increasingly dire situation in Eastern Europe. Then you'll hear from a Russia-Africa expert at the South African Institute of International Affairs, Stephen Grudst. What is the South African government's position on what's unfolding there? Why should you care? I ask Stephen to peer into his crystal ball on uh, on how this whole situation could unfold. Treasury One's Andres Liers uh, chats to editor Alec Hogg later in the program about the situation in Ukraine and the havoc it's causing in the markets. Then part one of the Q&A session from the recent business conference uh, that took place in the Drakensberg last week. DA Federal Chair Helen Ziller. She gave a fascinating chat about the upcoming fight for the soul of South Africa. That's as she put it. And what 2024 holds. So part one tonight, part two uh, of that Q&A session with Helen Ziller on Tuesday evening. Now to your news headlines. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. President Cyril Ramaphosa has weighed in on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, calling for the dispute to be settled through mediation rather than the barrel of the gun. Writing in his weekly open letter to the public, the president said that negotiation, dialogue and compromise may seem out of touch and even fanciful, but that South Africa had attained democracy through a negotiated settlement. Even prior to the resolution being passed at the UN last week, talks between Russian and Ukrainian officials had already started, he said. South Africa expected that the UN resolution would foremost welcome the commencement of dialogue between the parties and seek to create the conditions for these talks to succeed. United States Deputy Secretary of State Brian McKeon says that the department left no diplomatic stone unturned when confronting the Russian invasion of Ukraine. McKeon responded to President Cyril Ramaphosa's suggestion that if US President Joe Biden had agreed to meet with Russia's Vladimir Putin unconditionally days before the invasion, it would have been averted. McKeon stressed that South Africa abstaining from voting at the UN General Assembly to condemn Russia was not seen by the US as endorsing the invasion. He added that the abstention would not impact US relations with South Africa. SAA's privatization deal could stall as Transport Minister Fakile Mbalula failed to appoint two crucial air-permitting councils that need to approve the deal. Approval is required from the South African International Air Licensing Council and the Domestic Air Licensing Council. However, the terms of office of these councils expired in March 2021 and Mbalula failed to appoint new office bearers. Aviation experts believe that the failure to appoint the councils was a deliberate move to avoid scrutiny of SAA after it came out of business rescue in April last year. The airline resumed flying in September after 15 months on the ground. Because there was no functioning council, SAA was allowed to resume flights without scrutiny. This is especially the case where the unutilized rights of state-owned airlines like SA Express 
SAA and Mango are not made available to competitors and the same competitors cannot get approval for new regional routes. In the financial news, the JSC All Share Index was lower at 74,204. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against the major currencies at 15 rand 32 to the dollar, 20 rand 20 to the pound, and 16 rand 70 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,982 an ounce. A Kruger rand will put you back around 33,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at around $123 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back around 592,000 rand. Oil soared nearing $140 a barrel earlier as shockwaves rippled through the market after the US said it was considering a ban on Russian crude imports. Brent subsequently eased to about $125, levels that are exacerbating fears of a major inflationary shock to the global economy. The Biden administration is mulling whether to prohibit Russian oil imports without the participation of allies in Europe, at least initially, according to people familiar with the matter. Diesel futures in Europe and the US surged to the highest in decades, while gasoline contracts also leaped. In the latest news regarding Steinhoff, retail investors who submitted claims to Steinhoff can expect to get payouts of between 2 rand and 8 rand a share, according to Anchor Capital. Steinhoff is hoping that the payouts will enable it to draw a line under an accounting scandal linked to its former CEO, Marcus Joester. The retailer spent more than two years and tens of millions of euros to get hundreds of litigants in South Africa and Europe to back its settlement process. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, March 7th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The UN's top refugee official called the exodus from Ukraine the fastest-growing refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. The Biden administration has shifted position on whether to ban Russian oil, and oil prices surged. And global shipping was already in chaos because of the pandemic. Now there's the war. Sanctions are causing massive disruption and basically shipping companies have pressed pause on what they're doing. I'm Jess Smith, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Russia's attacks on Ukraine cities have sparked a massive refugee crisis. More than one and a half million people have fled the country since Russia invaded 11 days ago. That's according to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. About a million are in Poland. The government there has promised financial support to Poles who help refugees. Hungary and Slovakia are also taking in significant numbers, as is Moldova, one of Europe's poorest countries. Yesterday, Moldova's prime minister said her country is committed to helping all refugees in Ukraine, but she added she would need support from the international community. The price of Brent crude soared yesterday to nearly $130 a barrel. It's the highest oil's been since 2008. And the spike came after the Biden administration reversed its position on banning Russian oil imports. Washington had been resisting pressure from U.S. lawmakers to do so, partly out of fear that a ban would push up oil prices. But on Sunday morning, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made this comment on the NBC show Meet the Press. We are now in, uh, in very active discussions with our European partners uh, about banning the, uh, the import of Russian oil uh, to our countries, while, of course, at the same time, maintaining a steady uh, global supply of, uh, of oil. 
The FT's Stefania Palma says behind the change position is increasing pressure from lawmakers. So Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the House, came out recently saying she backed a ban of this kind, sort of piling pressure on the White House. And at the same time, a bill uh, was passed by a bipartisan group of U.S. senators uh, last week to ban U.S. imports of Russian oil. Obviously, the bill would have to pass the Senate and the House and, and be signed by the president to become law. But it was a further signal that uh, truly in Washington, there's been just an increased pressure to make this move. And with uh, Blinken coming out and saying that the U.S. was in very active discussions with its European partners about a coordinated ban on oil imports, it's quite uh, a change versus the kind of discussions that were happening in the last few days. And talks with European allies are significant because Europe relies on Russian energy much more than the U.S. That's been a concern of the White House. But Stefania says Europe may not be completely opposed to banning Russian oil. First of all, British officials are not ruling out a total ban on Russian oil imports, uh, even though one person we did quote, described uh, the move as potentially drastic. On the other hand, we also have a senior French official in reaction to Blinken's comments said that further sanctions were also being examined by European and other partners. Uh, But I think it's also worthwhile noting that Blinken also added that he wasn't going to rule out taking action one way or the other, irrespective of what others were going to do, which I think is something that we need to keep in mind. And I also believe it's something that uh, the Europeans are watching closely. Stefania Palma is the FT's legal and enforcement correspondent. Moscow may have thrown a wrench into U.S. efforts to reach an agreement with Iran to bring the U.S. back into the Iran nuclear accords. Western officials appear to be close to a deal, but this weekend, Russia's foreign minister said Moscow wants U.S. guarantees to ensure that sanctions on Russia over Ukraine did not damage Moscow's ability to freely trade with Iran, and that includes military technical cooperation. Russia is a signatory to the nuclear accords, and it's been involved in negotiations aimed at saving the deal. Russia's war on Ukraine is causing chaos for the global shipping industry. Last week, the world's two largest shipping container groups, Maersk and MSC, suspended cargo bookings to and from Russia. Maersk said that sanctions were starting to have an impact on trade. Here's the FT's industry reporter, Harry Dempsey. What is really disruptive for them is that they're having checks on their cargo to check they're not breaking sanctions in ports in the EU and in the UK. And that is really causing a sort of ripple effect across the world. Harry says shipping companies are also halting operations because of all the uncertainty. Sanctions are causing massive disruption. And basically, shipping companies have pressed pause on what they're doing because they don't want to send a cargo full of oil or gas which you know takes 10 days to get to Europe to then find out 3 days within the journey that that oil for some reason would not be allowed to be discharged at the port and he says the war has also shut down an important alternative that shippers had been using one of the things which is really significant as well is the closure of airspace so there's been a tit for tat between Europe and uh, Russia so Russia has closed its airspace to European carriers and vice versa. 
And that's a big problem for the air cargo market. So, I mean, the shipping market was already super stressed from the pandemic. And so lots of importers and exporters had turned to air cargo as a sort of safety valve. And they'd also been doing that for rail, which goes from China through to Europe. Those have both been disrupted on the air cargo side. They've got to travel further to avoid Russian or European airspace, depending on you know which carrier you are. And some Japanese airlines have stopped bookings for air cargo. And then the Trans-Siberian Rail has effectively stopped because of the war and sanctions on Russian railways. There's also an unexpected staffing issue. Harry says Ukraine and Russia typically provide a huge amount of seafarers to the global fleet. So I think one in seven from Russia or Ukraine. The Ukrainians in particular, they're highly skilled and they work in a lot of the management roles. So they're officers or captains. So they're not easily replaceable. And with all the flights stopping, that creates a massive problem for getting seafarers on and off the ships. And so I think what we're going to see in the coming weeks and months is a big, big disruption from that. Harry Dempsey is the FT's industry reporter. Before we go, another unexpected ripple effect of the war in Ukraine is being felt in Sri Lanka. The country had been banking on tourism and exports to replenish its foreign reserves and needs to pay off billions in foreign debt and buy energy supplies. But two of its biggest tourist markets were Russia and Ukraine. Russia is also a huge buyer of Sri Lanka's main export, tea. The fallout from the war has increased the risk of Sri Lanka defaulting now. One local analyst says it's extinguished all hope of resolving the country's economic crisis. You can read more about all these stories at FT.com. If you aren't yet a subscriber, you can still read our key Ukraine coverage for free. Just visit FT.com slash free to read. Again, that's FT.com slash free to read. We also put a link in the show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, I'm Michael Apple. I'm in discussion with Stephen Grudst, head of the Russia Africa Project at the South African Institute of International Affairs. Uh, Stephen, good to chat to you. From your understanding, what is the South African government's official position on Russia Ukraine? Hi, Michael. South Africa's official position is we are calling for a ceasefire, we are calling for mediation, we are calling for conflict resolution, and we don't want to be seen to be picking one side or the other. Um, in a number of statements by DERCO, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, over the week, we have pushed that line. Uh, the president this, uh, in, in his newsletter this week said that South Africa will, that all, the, the, all sides' views must be taken into account, that dialogue is the only way, that the United Nations needs to get involved in this and uh, it supports the Secretary General. Uh, only in one statement have we said unequivocally Russia must withdraw its, its troops from Ukraine. And that was on the 24th of February. Everything before that and since then has been more, we want to stay neutral, we want to promote dialogue, we want to make sure the uh, Russian point of view is is actually taken into account, their security concerns. Um, so we're mentioning Russia less and less in these statements. I think it's important to note, you've mentioned there that 
we uh, put out a rather strong statement uh, against Russia, calling on them to withdraw their troops. What ultimately happened to that statement, Stephen? Nothing really happened because the Russian troops are still there. Uh, the statement is still on the Durko website. But as I said, it's it's been bookended by uh, calls rather for, for peace and for dialogue and for reconciliation without fingering Russia. Well, let me, let me ask instead, what happened to Naledi Pandor, according to the Sunday newspapers, after issuing that, uh, that statement? Ah, well, there was, let's say, a difference of opinion. And uh, was uh, according to the Sunday newspapers, there was a war of words between the president and the minister of international relations and cooperation. When she subsequently met uh, or spoke at places like the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, she was more measured, and in that statement, she did not say Russia must leave Ukraine, Russia must withdraw its troops. So this seems to be a little blip, uh, but otherwise we're flatlining if we can. Stephen, let's be honest, it's not like South Africa having a particular position on, on calling for dialogue or a cessation of hostilities is going to change anything on the ground. There are far more powerful nations that have done that and not much is changing. Why is it important for South Africans to know what their government's official line is? Well, I think it's always important to know what the, your government is doing or saying or not doing and not saying in your name. I think we can just look at what happened at the United Nations uh, briefly for a few seconds. Um, a resolution was brought to the Security Council uh, that was censuring Russia, and it was not passed. It was abstained on by um, India, China, and the UAE, but it was vetoed by Russia, because Russia, as a permanent member of the Security Council, has veto power. Then a motion was tabled at the General Assembly, where there are 191 countries present. Uh, 141 countries voted to, on a quite strongly worded resolution to, uh, for Russia to withdraw its troops and for there to be peace and dialogue in the area. South Africa abstained on that. We were one of 35 countries that abstained. Uh, six countries voted no, including Russia, North Korea, Syria, Eritrea, uh, and a number of African countries, eight of them were actually not even in the room when the vote was taken. So to get back to your question, I think it is very important for citizens to know what our government's official line is, uh, why it says what it says. We voted for, the, for this government and they represent us. And if citizens don't agree with what government says, I think they're within their rights to question that, whether it's on social media or in the media or protest or we wait until the next election. But foreign policy issues are important. What did you read into our abstention? I think uh, what was good was that South Africa explained its decision. So just after the vote was taken, an explanation went up on the Durko website. This took, if you'll remember, back to 2007 when we had a controversial vote on Myanmar. It took days and days and days for this vote to be explored. So South Africa says, uh, one, the process of putting the resolution together was not as consultative as it should be. Two, the resolution has a throwaway line at the bottom where it says we should call for peace and dialogue, but 80% of the resolution is critical of Russia. And I think uh, while South Africa says it's remaining neutral, many have read into that stance that if you're not against what Russia is doing, you're implicitly endorsing it. Now, 
I think it's more subtle than that. And uh, South Africa, also in the president's letter this morning, said that we have a lot of experience in conflict mediation, in our own conflict. People said this could never be resolved. And actually, the parties got around a table and resolved it. South Africa perhaps has skills that they could bring to bear. But as you're right, it's, it's crowded. There are a lot of countries that are trying to mediate here, including big ones like France and Germany. Hungary has been mentioned. Israel has even been mentioned. And, and uh, Prime Minister Bennett took a trip to Russia and has had long conversations with President Zelensky. So there's nothing really to mediate at the moment because the guns are still firing. But other countries indeed are, are, are stepping in here. I saw a tweet from the Russian embassy over the weekend, and I'd like to read it, so bear with me. Quote, Dear subscribers, we have received a great number of letters of solidarity from South Africans, both individuals and organizations. We appreciate your support and I'm glad you decided to stand with us today when Russia, like 80 years ago, is fighting Nazism in Ukraine. Close quote. Besides the actual war being fought on the ground, is there an information war going on here, Stephen? Absolutely. This is hybrid warfare in its best form. Uh, on that particular tweet, I hope you saw the reply from the German embassy. I did. Uh, which said, unfortunately, we are the experts on Nazism and this is just nonsense. Um, indeed, it is an information war. You can see it in uh, social media. I'm sure all our feeds are full of commentary from people on the ground, from opinion makers, and indeed the leaders themselves. I think uh, President Zelensky has done an amazing job of uh, putting his view out there, of being personable, of being personal, and, and, and of being very brave. I think Putin has appeared much more wooden and reserved, uh, some might say unhinged, uh, at certain points. But, you know, he has these conferences around an enormous table where the other guy sits right at the back, uh, you know, it looks something uh, like it's out of the movies. They, the, so there we have contrasting styles. And of course, supporters of both sides are exploiting social media to get their view across. You've written a great p uh, opinion piece uh, a few days ago about South Africa's seemingly position of quiet diplomacy um, and how we appear to be very hesitant to, to, as you say, even use words like war or to name Russia in certain statements. How did quiet diplomacy work out for us uh, in previous years? Quiet diplomacy was a phrase that definitely came into the lexicon around our work on Zimbabwe. Uh, after the 2008 elections, which you'll remember then went to a runoff and there was extreme violence in between the two polls, South Africa said under President Mbeki that we refused to uh, be uh, practicing megaphone diplomacy, we have quiet diplomacy. We will work behind the scenes. It did bring about the global political agreement in Zimbabwe, which led to a coalition government, which was then voted out of government in 2013. So while it's much maligned, I think there is a role for behind the scenes work in diplomacy. I mean, if there wasn't besides behind the scenes work by Norway, we wouldn't have had the Oslo Accords. In, in the Middle East. Now, you may say that those have been very unsuccessful, but the, uh, at the time when they came out in the middle 90s, uh, they were groundbreaking. And that happened very much on the quiet. We also know from our own tradition, uh, transition that the ANC was meeting with government, that uh, P.W. Boerter and F.W. Clerk were meeting Mandela while he was in jail. That only came out years later. So uh, I, I think, you know, we, we do have diplomatic muscle. We do have a say and we do have 
an important voice in the African continent and on the international stage. And I think President Ramaphosa is trying to recapture some of that voice, which may have been quieter in the last 10 years. Uh, but, you know, if we can make an effort to, to bring these parties together, I think we should. Just remind us, Stephen, what is the historical ties between the Soviet Union and the African National Congress? So the ties are, are quite uh, significant. Of course, Russia was one of the big supporters of liberation movements in Southern Africa, including in Angola, in Mozambique, uh, both of which had socialist governments after the initial civil wars. The Soviet Union provided weapons. We know that there were Cuban soldiers and, and Russians in, in Angola for many years, and that was only resolved when uh, Namibia got its independence in 1990. Uh, many ANC uh, operatives of a certain generation studied in Russia, had weapons training in Russia and the other countries of the Soviet bloc. Some of them speak Russian. Um, so there's an affinity there. Russia opened diplomatic relations, reopened diplomatic relations with South Africa in 1992, which was quite controversial because it was still the de Klerk government and they hadn't told the ANC that they were going to open an embassy. So that caused a bit of upset. But we'll, we also saw last week that there was a celebration of 30 years of diplomatic relations with South Africa on the very eve that the war started and senior government officials uh, and military top brass were at that function uh, celebrating this, this relationship. And I don't think that was a good look. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, in politics, perception is reality. And the reality is you have ANC, but also the head of the, the defense force, um, meeting at, uh, at and I wrote an article on this. I said perception is reality, and the reality is you've got uh, deployees of the ANC and, and top brass within the South African National Defense Force seemingly ingratiating themselves with the skunk of the world. And those are my words, not anybody else's. From an International Relations 101 point of view, was it in poor taste for South Africa to attend this function at the Russian embassy? I think it was. I mean, it was probably prearranged. I'm sure they didn't get the invitation on the day. And maybe they didn't expect the war to be on. But it was, in my view, very insensitive. And, uh, you know, if any, if South Africa had a pretension or a, an intention to appear neutral, attending that function and uh, hobnobbing with the great and the good from the Russian embassy on the day of the invasion didn't make for good press. Uh, unless, of course, you are from that large section of our population who feels that we have historical ties to the Soviet Union and to Russia and that this is all about NATO encroachment on uh, on Russia's doorstep and uh, Russia is right in what it's doing. I mean, I've heard those views. I've heard them on talk radio stations in the media that I've been doing. I've heard them on TV programs. We've seen it in social media. We've seen it in the newspapers. That's a, a strongly held view amongst many citizens, not only in South Africa, but in other African countries as well. Do we need to be very cautious when we're looking at social media, especially around the Russia-Ukraine issue? We know Twitter is not real life. Um, otherwise, the EFF would have won elections in the past. So we need to be very careful about the opinions that we assume to be of the majority of South Africans is social media just a very dangerous place at the moment, considering this information war you've spoken about? It is. And both sides are firing salvos all the time. 
and uh, what you like and what you retweet. Uh, and I think it's particularly so on Twitter, much less so on, say, Instagram or, or Facebook. The platforms are, create a different kind of conversation. Um, I think we must be very cautious. What is the source of this? Is it genuine? Do I pass it on? Uh, do I comment on it? Do I ignore it? Uh, who do I believe? And I think the, the shutting down of Russia Today, uh, RT, in, in Africa, because uh, the European feed is no longer coming, uh, has been a controversial issue. Many people uh, watched that channel. Some condemned it as you know, shameless propaganda. Others said, look, it's important to see the Russian point of view of these things. So I think, in a way, it's a shame that it was taken down. I understand the reasons for it. But, uh, yeah, this is a war of ideas as much as it is a war of, of guns and mortars and anti-aircraft uh, uh, missiles. Do you see it escalating beyond, I mean, can it escalate any further? I think any further escalation would be, well, let's talk about the dreaded N-word here. You, a couple of uh, days ago, you had uh, the Russian president put his nuclear deterrent unit on high alert. Did you have a feeling, you'll forgive me here, but I, you're obviously a few years older than I am. I don't remember the Cuban-Russian or the Cuban missile crisis. Was there a feeling that when Putin had his, potentially had his hand on the red button here, if that's a way to, to, to explain it, did you get a particular feeling, nostalgia here? So firstly, I have to set the record straight and say that the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 was 10 years before I was born. <laughs> but I did live through the Cold War. I did live through the Cold War. And uh, I mean, I th that was a chilling statement. I think it was a veiled warning. Uh, and I was asking, is this about attack or defense? It was a veiled warning that just hold on a second, we have nuclear weapons. Would he use them? I mean, they have not been used in battle since uh, 1945 when they were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they remain extremely destructive weapons. Um, I think that anybody who would contemplate nuclear war uh, would be at the end of their, their, their options. You know, it's very worrying that plants like Chernobyl and others have uh, been taken by Russian soldiers. This is, these are not weapons, uh, areas because Ukraine gave up its weapons in 1994 with the guarantee that its territorial integrity and its sovereignty would be respected. Uh, and that hasn't happened. Um, yeah, look, do I think there's impending nuclear war? No. Can this spread? Of course it can spread. Um, but I think if it, if it were to go to the Baltic states or, or <clears throat> somewhere like Georgia or Moldova, um, that would change the whole game. And if it was a, a, a NATO state that was attacked, uh, and they have 30 members, mo many of them in Eastern Europe, if it was a NATO state that would be attacked, NATO is obliged to respond. And then, I don't want to be a prophet of doom here, but this could be a world war uh, if that happens. Uh, many people, I think, didn't think this would happen when an Austrian prince, uh, noble, was shot in Sarajevo in 1914, Within two months, uh, the world was in the Great War and millions of people died. So I never say never. But uh, I think all sides are also trying to contain this not to go beyond Ukraine. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, do you believe that they are doing everything humanly possible, even at the potential of looking weak, as so many of people have called them? 
Zelensky is also, he's been begging for help from NATO. Is there a policy of they just keep backpedaling, backpedaling? I wouldn't say appeasement, but they are trying absolutely everything within their power not to get into a, an open war with Russia. That's true. Uh, that's true. And, uh, you know, I think they've done a lot more than what happened in 2014. Remember, this conflict's been going on for eight years. Um, some may say it's too little too late. I think they're very supportive of the sanctions and they're very scared of uh, this escalating. So they ruled out a no-fly zone because as we learned from South Africa in Libya in 2011, a no-fly zone means you shoot enemy planes out of the sky. And if that were happening, uh, I think uh, Putin would be very much within his rights to say they've escalated the war. If, if you have... NATO troops firing uh, Russian planes out of the sky. So um, there's, there's only so much that they can do short of being involved. I mean, NATO itself is not arming the Ukrainians, but NATO is, some of its members are doing so. And Zelensky appealed for airplanes and NATO has said, well, if you've got airplanes and you want to give it to them, give it to them. So, you know, but NATO for all its existence has mainly been a, a defensive alliance. Of course, it was involved in in Libya in 2011, it was involved in the bombing of uh, Yugoslavia at, at, in the end of the 90s, in the Bosnian War, in the in the Balkan War. Sorry, so it has fired shots previously. But you know, the other point to make is that NATO has been on Russia's border since 1949 when it was formed, because Norway is a member of NATO, and Norway shares 196 kilometers of border with uh, this, with with Russia. Uh, still to this day. So to say that NATO expansion is the reason for this war, in my view, is is not accurate. I've seen a lot of images, the equivalence being drawn between Adolf Hitler and Vladimir Putin. They're calling him Putler. Is that a fair comparison, do you believe? I think any comparison to the Nazis is dangerous, but he is acting in the way that dictators and power-hungry megalomaniacs who are looking for Lebensraum or, or to subdue uh, uh, states into puppet governments and, and uh, vassal states. Um, I think we've got to be very careful because Nazis were responsible for the Holocaust. Uh, they were responsible for upending the whole of Europe. I think we just need to be very careful. I can see why people m might want to draw comparisons, but... I personally uh, would would prefer not to use that. That's not to diminish the seriousness of the situation, but analogies are uh, can sometimes go wrong, and and I think one must be very cautious. Yeah, it's it's a difficult uh, question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you believe is is Vladimir Putin's end game here? So I think two things. One is he wants an uninterrupted land bridge between Russia proper and Crimea, uh, because at the moment it's almost a, it's a peninsula, but it's an island that doesn't have a connection to Russia proper. So I think that's one of his aims. And I think, secondly, he wants to install a Moscow-friendly regime in Kiev, uh, one that is never going to join the European Union, that is never going to join NATO, and that will be a similar state to, to Belarus, which uh, has, has a leader that is very close to Moscow uh, in, in his view. Um, I think that's the aim. I think they also want to try and take out as much uh, of, of Ukraine's weapons as possible. 
um, and they they want to enhance the security of Russian speakers in the Donbas region. Uh, but you know, it's arguable that doing this is going to in, ensure their prosperity and their continued existence. The sanctions with the terrible war. Um, I'm not sure things are going so well for for those Russian speakers in the Donbas. Do you believe, as so many others do, the Ukrainians certainly are selling the story that he is simply not ever going to stop here? Do you uh, potentially see this as the Sudetenland 1938 Chamberlain's policy of appeasement? What do you think on that? I think there are parallels, definitely. I think, though, the West has tried to stand up as much as they can short of getting into a shooting war, which, as we discussed, has the potential for uh, escalation. I mean, these sanctions are not a joke. Major credit card companies, banks, oil, uh, produce, uh, they, they are really going to hurt the Russian economy. Is, is it enough? Is it too late? Is it, it you know, not aimed at the right area? But... You know, people asked questions about of of uh, Europe in 1938, uh, and they gave Hitler what he said he wanted, but he took more, and he wanted more, and uh, appeasement was a dismal failure. The issue of these sanctions, they naturally take quite a while to bite, but it's going to affect the Ru- Russian population, not necessarily the millionaires and billionaires and the oligarchs and, and so on. Yes, they're being targeted, but it's it's the fact that you as an ordinary uh, Russian can't go and pay for something with your credit card. The ruble is tumbling every single day. Uh, their stock market is closed. They're afraid there's going to be a, a sell on the stock market. Is the idea behind these sanctions, do you f- foresee it getting to such a point that there are so many countries, we're going to reach a tipping point where there's going to be a popular uprising against Putin? And how is he going to respond if that happens? Well, he's going to res- if it does happen, he will respond with the brutality that he's always shown both domestically and internationally. I mean, there have been, I think, six and a half thousand Russian protesters already imprisoned. Um, I think the sanctions will bite. I think they're biting already. I don't think he's going to have a war che- as big a war chest. But he did uh, actually uh, assemble a war chest and, and bought gold and bought other... Uh, I'm not an economist, but he, he did other things to san- san- exactly sanction-proof his economy. Don't forget, also, he has a lifeline in China. China. Uh, Russian-China yeah. relations are extremely close. Uh, China uh, has afforded some protection for Russia politically, but also economically. And, and I think Russia is going to be more and more dependent. I think what we're also going to see is expansion in Africa. Uh, my work takes a look at the Russian footprint in Africa, which is getting more and more significant. Nothing like China's or the US or, or Britain or the European Union but getting bigger all the time. Uh, Over the weekend, there was a report that said that businesses are going to expand in Africa. Uh, And this happened after 2014, when other markets were closed. Russia desperately sought markets in Latin America, in East Asia, and in Africa. Very lastly, is China looking at Taiwan and going, hmm, the world is very busy with Russia-Ukraine at the moment. Is there a potential for something there? There is a potential. I think China is looking very carefully at what's happening um, because it does have claims over the island of Taiwan and has said on numerous occasions that it is part of one China. uh, And there have been threats to take it by force if 
again, we're wildly speculating here, but if China decided to move now, that would really widen this conflict and it, it's, it would be not unconnected to this conflict. When the dust settles, if the dust settles, and it will at some point settle, maybe, maybe China will be emboldened or maybe China will think, mm, no, this is not, not viable or feasible at the moment. Um, I think also because America sees China as a much bigger and more important rival than, than Russia is at the moment. I mean, Obama uh, disparagingly called Russia a regional power and uh, not a global power. And that really, I think, got up Putin's nose. So yes, were there to be two such simultaneous conflicts, uh, we'd have a whole different ballgame. Stephen Gruzd, head of the Russia Africa Project at the South African Institute of International Affairs. Thanks so much for your thoughts and for your time today. This Currency Focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Andre Salia from Treasury One. My goodness, this has been a time for the rest of us to tap into your wisdom, Andre, with what's going on in Eastern Europe and the RAND and how it affects our pockets. Maybe let's just start from the very beginning. This, this invasion by Russia into Ukraine has now been going on for 12 days. If you track back the impact on the South African RAND, it was looking very strong ahead of this. And now, of course, it, it has almost predictably being impacted. Yes, uh, certainly. When I spoke to Justin two weeks ago uh, on the Monday, I mean, we knew about the possibility of, uh, of a Ukraine-Russian war. But at that stage, everybody was hoping that, you know, there would be still dialogue and it would not happen. It did happen. If we look at the value of the RAND at that stage, it was trading around the 1515 level. Uh, but at the same time, against the euro, it was trading around the 1715 level as well. Now, since then, uh, at that stage, uh, one needs to mention what happened to, to the dollar, because the euro against the dollar was trading at levels of 1.13. It now trades at 1.0840, which is a 4% weaker euro. At the same time, the rand had actually strengthened against the euro by some 2.6%, uh, and only weakened against the dollar by about 1.5-1.6%. So the rand has done exceptionally well over this period, in the sense that it gained against some currencies, weakened against others. Uh, if you look at what happened to the ruble, for instance, you know, the devaluation or the weakening of the ruble against the dollar uh, is in the order of uh, 80% over this last 12 days. So massive moves uh, in the currency space, but also massive moves in the uh, commodity space. Gold, as we speak, uh, just before I came in for this discussion, was just briefly over the 2000 dollars an ounce again was there this morning came down slightly but it's there again uh, palladium and platinum uh, shooting out the lights if you look at the palladium price since december to now then you're speaking and and, and one should really sit down and hold onto your chairs on these figures because it's trading around 70 to 75 percent higher that's the jump in in in, in that space uh, if you look at the price of coal, 
Coal was briefly over 400. It might be even above that again today, uh, but over $400 uh, a ton last week uh, from levels of 220, 230. So immense. And this is all because of the energy crisis. You look at the oil price, a 40% move in the last two weeks or so. You know, we can now discuss what's the impact of these things, but that's the kind of moves that we've seen. It's extraordinary when you put it into that kind of context. I was at the uh, in the lockup for the budget, what's it, a week ago, just over a week ago, and there the South African Treasury were getting um, somewhat concerned about being able to repeat in the next year, in the next fiscal year, the bonus that had been achieved through higher commodity prices. But from what you've unpacked for us, bizarrely, this war is doing South Africa's export earnings a, a heck of a lot of good. It does the export earnings a heck of a lot of good. The One of the problems that we might incur is, can you actually get the physical exports out and delivered to the other side? That is something that is still to be seen because if this war continues uh, it might have an impact on how do you get goods from point a to point b uh, and, and and certainly if this continues then the commodity boom that we're seeing uh, might continue because the demand will be there um, but as i say the logistics might not be there but certainly some benefit to the fiscus again on that front uh, going forward I must honestly, honestly say that at this point in time, I'd rather not see the fiscus benefit uh, from from a windfall like that, uh, and rather see a wall that dissipates and actually unwinds, and we get back to a more peaceful situation, because this is certainly not good for world economies, uh, and and Europe especially, uh, if if this continues. You made the point a moment ago that. The South African rand has strengthened against the euro, but not weakened too much against the US dollar. But just maybe starting with the US dollar and the euro as a beginning point, why would it be that the dollar would have strengthened so aggressively against the euro, beyond the obvious that this is happening in Europe? I think at the end of the day, this is happening in Europe, and that's exactly why the euro uh, is doing so badly, and also the pound is doing badly. It's a Europe, mostly a European war, um, and if this escalates and continues, it, it will be fought out in Europe, and their economies will be impacted much more than anywhere else. Apart from that, if you also look at the exposure of Europe to Russia, uh, then the whole sanction thing will impact dramatically more on Europe than on the rest. Uh, just for instance, if you look at debt of Russian banks uh, to European banks, uh, the bulk of the debt lies into the uh, European banks. And that's why Europe is so badly suffering, or the euro is so badly suffering under this whole situation. And the sterling, pound sterling, you said that's also weakened. Why would the British... Uh, currency, given that they about as far as away as you could get if you happen to be in Europe from what's going on in Ukraine, why would they also be under pressure? Well, I think they're very closely, uh, they're still very close to Europe. Uh, and even though there is and was a Brexit, 
you know, those two, the European economy and the UK economy is still very, very closely interlinked. Uh, and, and the bulk of trade between the UK uh, still takes place with Europe. So that's why that would also impact so badly on the British pound. And the South African rand being relatively strong, is that more a question of benefiting from the commodities or just being far away from all the craziness? I think it helps that we're a little bit further away, firstly, but uh, most certainly at this point in time, the biggest benefit comes from uh, the commodity boom uh, that we're seeing because of this and the massive increase in, in commodity prices. Uh, I think what's being left a little bit on the back foot is the uh, negative impact that the dramatic increase of the oil price will also have on our trade balance because we are uh, oil remains one of our biggest imports uh, and hence the actual flow of money in terms of what you need to pay for oil will also increase massively. Uh, so, you know, the commodity boom and the oil price uh, both impacting on the trade balance, the one positive, the other one negative. Uh, but certainly the outweighing of the commodity boom on that front, uh, assisting the rand. So how do you see this all playing out? Maybe you can give us a, a, a short-term and a long-term perspective on this. In other words, if, it, if the war continues for another 24 or another 12 days and, and then, uh, then it stops or, or at least there's, there's not the kind of um, television um, uh, visuals that we're seeing, or if the Ukrainian people give a, continue to, to, uh, to show such, such great defense and, and it continues grinding away almost indefinitely. What are those two scenarios looking like for you? If it continues for the next 10 to 12 days, I think the impact will, will be minimized uh, in the sense that uh, commodity prices and all these things will return to lower levels and, and more acceptable levels and the oil price will retreat to lower levels uh, and a crisis will be averted. If it continues longer and it goes on for weeks and months, uh, I think uh, it, it, it's a very, very negative picture for the world and in terms of what happens to world growth. Uh, I think it will be an extremely negative picture in terms of what happens to inflation rates throughout the world, also in South Africa, and the impact of what that can be, have on interest rates uh, and, and the value of currencies. But moreover, the massive increase that one can expect then uh, and shortages that could start coming in in terms of certain foods, uh, the shortages of uh, energy, you know, oil could go even further, that could go much higher then, uh, fuel prices could go much higher, that will lead to massive inflation on food, uh, but you might actually physically see shortages. Uh, you will see an impact on our export side. Um, we are a great exporter of fruit, a uh, big exporter of fruit to Russia. Um, from what I've read, some 12% of our apple exports is, is, is going to Russia. You know, so industries throughout the world, companies throughout the world will be impacted by sanctions uh, and companies around the globe will start suffering. And as I say, shortages will come in 
leading to impacts on uh, both price and, and, and inflation and ultimately interest rates. Uh, and that obviously to world growth. So a longer duration, a longer duration of this world, of this war, would have very, very negative impacts uh, and, and spells doom and gloom for consumers around the globe, uh, especially in Europe. And then I'm not even touching on what happens if the war escalates uh, to a bigger and wider war uh, that might span outside the borders of Russia and the, and the Ukraine. It's a, a very sobering picture that you've painted for us, Andre. But how are you advising Treasury One's clients who are exporting on the one hand and importing on the other? Well, my advice has always been, and it will always be, uh, to not follow an approach of trying to get the maximum rate or the minimum rate or whatever, the, you know, either being exporters or importers, but to manage your risk. Uh, what makes it extremely difficult now, uh, especially is if you're exposed to markets in Russia with imports and exports, is that your volumes uh, change substantially, uh, which could influence the amount of risk that you uh, are exposed to in terms of certain currencies. And you'll have to find new markets. And though new, new markets might not, be pay, might not pay you in dollars, they might pay you in other currencies. So the composition of your... Uh, total exposure uh, looks f f massively differently or potentially differently uh, and also smaller. Uh, but from a solid proper risk management point of view is look at hedges that bodes well for you and that gives you certain scope and maneuverability in terms of levels uh, and be cautious of just trying to take advantage of a high exchange rate and then leading into a situation where you actually accept more risk than you really want on your books. So every individual company uh, needs to look at their own situation and discuss their own situation uh, with either us or their advisors uh, because there's not a one fit for all in this whole scenario. Uh, every company would be differently exposed uh, and one would have to analyze that risk and make sure that you steer through these volatile periods, try and get rid of some of the volatility, but be able to steer through these volatile times uh, without affecting your bottom line too much. This Currency Focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. So, so how far was the country set back by the fatal mistake, as you said, as you explained it, that the DA made in the election by fighting uh, not, not on the strategy that, that you'd been planning? And just, just, sorry, by way of background, Helen, I can't, again, you probably won't remember this, but it must be 15, 20 years ago, you were at the Carlton Centre in the middle of Johannesburg, where... Uh, I came along, I never really went to political events often, and there you were. And I thought, uh, ex-colleague, let's go and see what she was doing. And I can remember the hostility of the, of the questioning, was, which showed me that the media was certainly not the media we used to remember, but very, very one-sided. And at that stage, we spoke afterwards, and you said that the, sh the face of the DA would change dramatically into the future, uh, and that 
also the color of the faces of the DA, and it duly happened. But many people look back at that previous, the past election, and now wonder whether the DA has gone back into some kind of a white lager. Look, absolutely not. And the irony is that we have so many incredible black leaders in so many key places. But the way the, the media functions is they only give publicity to a black leader who's fighting the DA. And then you think, oh, well, that must be the sum total of black leaders. I mean, if you look at our whole suite of mayors, our whole suite of provincial leaders, it's so obvious that a large number of them are black South Africans. But the, that's irrelevant to us. The point is they are good. The mayor of um, Johannesburg, Dr. Mpopalatse, is a case in point. No one ever sees her because she's not fighting with us. She's living out our values and driving the vision in Johannesburg with a nine-party coalition, dit wil gedunvies. And believe me, when the voters hand us these impossible coalitions with tiny parties that have no political philosophy and are in there really to get positions for themselves, and I'm not exaggerating, in 80% of the cases, that is what it is. To run a coalition like that and try to get Johannesburg on the road again is unbelievably difficult. I did it in Cape Town when we took over Cape Town from the ANC in 2006. Then there's Randall Williams in Chwani. There was Ngababanga in Nelson Mandela Bay. And I can continue. Jordan Hill Lewis is the first white male mayor the DA has ever had in Cape Town. Has ever had. If you look at Siviwe Guajube, if you look at Nokoma Sipa, I mean, I can go through all the lists, but it's demeaning to them. They are not in the DA because they want to be held up as black leaders. They are in the DA because they believe in our values and they have come through very, very tough contestations in order to emerge in the only party that puts our MPs and MPLs and others through a grueling test to make it to the top. Soli Musimanga is our Gauteng leader. I mean, all over, we have excellent black leaders who are doing a most outstanding job. And the media never look at them. They look at Pumzile Van Damme, who's fighting with John Steenhuizen. And that's what they think is the sum total of black people in the DA. It's just lunatic. Thanks for, for doing that. Now, we are in KZN, where you've won your first municipality. Mm. Chris Pappas, in fact, uh, his parents farm very close to this area, very close to, I used to buy feed from his, from his father. Uh, Mike in Moy River, and on a on a uh, little presentation I did with the local Howick community the other day, a lady said, "This new mayor of ours is is quite extraordinary because her helper said he's sent by God," and she said, "What do you mean by that?" And she said, "When I open my eyes, I see he's white, but when I close my eyes, I know he's black." <laughs> Are you breeding more of these? multilingual, multicultural South Africans within the party that are future Chris Pappas's? Well, people are attracted to the DA because they're attracted to our value set. And they know, like Chris Pappas knows, that he will be judged on his value, not on the color of his skin or any other criterion. And I'm fascinated to hear that uh, a Zulu lady, I presume, is saying, well, I, think I see he's white, but when I close my eyes, I think he's black. If that's how you do your tr transition to non-racialism, well, hallelujah. 
That's what we stand for. We want people to be judged for what they are, not for what they look like. And in this modern mad woke time, you know, it's the opposite of what Martin Luther King says. It's you judge people by the color of their skin, not the content of their character. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.